Last week was the first ever podcasting for business conference, and I don't mind saying that it was a pretty big success. There was just so much amazing content from the fantastic speakers, and I know that I personally learned so much that I can't wait to apply to this show and the ones that we produce for clients. The event itself is over, but the recordings are available, and you can grab a copy of them at pfbcon.com slash register. That's pfbcon.com slash register. And I really strongly urge you to do so. Some of these strategies are going to be absolute game changers. There were two days of presentations. And on the third day, we did a deep dive interview into the State of Business podcasting report, as well as some workshops on how to apply that data. And I'm really delighted that I can share with you today that exact deep dive interview into this year's State of Business podcasting report results. Tom Fox and I had a 40-minute conversation about the results, what they mean, how to apply them to your own business, and you can enjoy them today on the Business Podcast Blueprint show. Welcome, everyone, to the third and final day of podcasting for business. We're going to have some really interesting sessions today. We're going to start with a session with Megan and myself on the 2022 State of Business Podcasting Report. Hopefully everyone now knows Megan, co-founder of One Stone Creative, but her work around the State of Business Podcasting Report is really unique in the podcast space. It's a report she and her team at One Stone Creative prepare annually, and we're going to take a deep dive into this year's report. So Megan, welcome to day three. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This has been an amazing event. I've had such a good time and learned so much. And today I'm really excited to look at how we can use the data about business podcasts from, you know, the best of the best out there to make our own company shows even better. All right. Before we start, though, I just want to say I felt like last night this really wasn't an event for me. It's almost a journey. And (laughs) the the journey today is going to begin with this report. So let's start with what is the State of Business Podcasting Report? So the State of Business Podcasting Report is kind of an overview, a survey, a collection of data points about the top 100 business podcasts. So when we're doing this, we go to Chartable and we find out in the middle of October, who are the top 100 podcasts this year that were tagged as business? And I mean, that's not a perfect heuristic for a company show, but it's, you know, the industry that we're all working in. Then we look at each of those podcasts on 75 different data points and collect all of the data into one place and then analyze it and think about what it means and how we can apply it. So it's really just an overview look at the trends in B2B or business podcasting for companies. Megan, how long have you and the team been preparing this report? This is our third annual report. So the first one we released in 2020. You know, looking back, and I didn't think of it at the time, but maybe this was, you know, a lockdown-inspired project. <laughs> we I actually think it was. I think it probably was. You know, we couldn't go out and do anything. The events and conferences, the learning we were usually doing in the industry was all kind of forestalled. It seemed like it was a good idea to put this kind of resource together, particularly because, you know, as a producer of podcasts, often we were asked things or members of my team were asked things like, you know, how long should my podcast be? Should I have guests? What day of the week should I be releasing? And I'd you know, I had educated guesses based on having been in the industry and working in it, but I didn't have hard data to answer those questions. And well, Tom, you know, you know me pretty well. I like having data to answer questions. So we're like, well, we may as well just do it. It was so much fun that we've done it now three years in a row. 
Well, you do like data, so let's get into the data with this year's key findings, starting with part one, age and releases. So age and releases is always really interesting. This is what we're looking at, just how long have these podcasts existed? When you're starting a new podcast for your company, generally your goal is not going to be to become the most famous podcast of all time, but it is nice to know what traction looks like over time in comparison to the industry. So the shows that are kind of top of the top, uh, there's a pretty even spread of how old they are. Every year, there's always some brand new ones that they launch to the top of the charts. And some of the most popular shows have been popular for a really long time. And then everything in between. If a business's goal is to really kind of achieve one of those top spots, as with any podcast, the best time to start it was five years ago, but the second best time is today. And you can still achieve pretty much any size of goal that you're willing to put the effort in to, to work towards. Another interesting thing about age podcasts this is kind of where we look at the churn from year to year, how many podcasts are new on this list for the first time. Pretty low number this year, it was 30% were new. And the other 70% roughly were also represented in last year's report. So I thought that was a little interesting factoid. So let's move on to frequency of release. And this is something that I certainly have struggled with. What did you see in the top 100 podcasts? And anything about this surprise you? Not so much of a surprise here. This is more almost like a pleasing confirmation of a belief that I hold about the industry. So the most popular by far is weekly or more releases. Often a lot of people will start a podcast and they will do it for workflow or budget reasons, want to do it monthly or want to do it every other week. And that's probably better than nothing, but to actually gain traction and to really make progress towards your business goals, you want to, as much as possible, be releasing at least weekly. Now, I think some of our presenters over the last couple of days have made the good point, you know, there is a lot of other work that goes around podcasting. And if it's the difference between releasing daily or weekly and doing nothing else and releasing less frequently, but doing all of those other promotional and show notes related activities, release less frequently, get everything in. But if it's possible, release more, because that's kind of how you build and maintain the interest of that audience. So let's move to length and perhaps other release cadence. And then to days that podcasts are released. What did you see here? This is just kind of a funny thing is now this is the third year in the row that the average length of the podcast has been either 44 or 43 minutes. That's how long the podcasts are. It's just over 40 minutes. And that's a really robust result over time. Something that was interesting here we noticed was for the, especially the more frequent releases, if you're going three times a week or daily, you're looking at much shorter episodes, I think for very obvious Time is linear and it's finite reasons. And the longer ones were either weekly or less frequent and tended to be less edited, which I thought was interesting. There's a little more about that that later on. And days of release. Days of release are pretty similar year over year. The most important consideration when it comes to release day is where it fits in your own company's workflow. It's not going to make a huge difference whether you're releasing on Tuesday or Friday at this point. It is kind of a little bit funny. The first couple of years we did this research, Thursday was the most popular day. And I think Thursday is too popular. It's not cool anymore. So I saw a little less Thursday releasing and more in the top of the week. So I just thought that was funny. Moving down to branding, what did you see sort of initially around host, number of hosts, and then moving to artwork, which is something we really touched on quite a bit during the Business for Podcasting conference. Definitely. So when it comes to creating a podcast, typically you're going to have a single host. And often that single host is going to be talking to guests or do, conducting an interview of some kind. But like 
Alistair mentioned in his conversation on Wednesday, a co-hosted podcast or a buddy style podcast can be really, really fun and really exciting. And it, that all sort of derives from what your goal or your purpose for podcasting is. And that's just like having the host name in the title. If you are someone who is building a business and a brand around being a public original thinker, yeah, you're probably going to want your podcast to have your name in the title because that's really the foundation of your brand. If you're not looking to create a named brand like that, then it's a lot more likely you're going to have a name that is more topical or relevant to your audience rather than about yourself. And of course, if you're co-hosted, you're probably not going to have a single host name as the title either. So cover art. Like I said, we talked about this quite a bit, but what did the findings or your research show? Man, people love blue for business podcasts. <laughs> Every year, people I love the you. blue. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, guilty, my podcast cover art is also blue. Uh, Sabrina talked about this really well in her presentation yesterday. And that, you know, more important than any other consideration, I mean, you can get as much into color theory as you want to, but most important is brand cohesiveness across the different areas of your business. If you're running a podcast for your business, you want it to be instantly recognizable as associated with your business. And your cover art is going to be the first and best way to do this. I think the next thing we're going to be looking at is the type of art, the style. That's where you can add more of that personality. But for colors, for fonts, for everything like that, you just want it to fit in with your brand. And the other thing we've got here on the screen is the unique episode art. And that's when you are looking at your list in Apple Podcasts or in Spotify. For most podcasts, the vast majority of podcasts, it's going to be the same. It's just going to be the cover art down that whole list of episodes. But you do have the option at the host level to add episode unique art. And it is quite noticeable when that does happen. So I'm finding that it's uncommon because it's a lot of work, but it really looks quite nice and polished on the finished end. So it's something worth considering. And what about style and then the topics you guys found? Definitely. So for style, people like people. So having a host picture in some way in the cover art is a good idea. People like knowing who they're listening to and who, who they're hearing. Uh, quite interesting. I remember I saw recently on social media, there's a podcast I listen to, Sawbones. They don't have host pictures in the artist. It's a graphic art, 20% of the top 100. But I, found, I saw them on, on a TikTok that went viral and it happened to come up on my Facebook stream. And like, I looked for them. It was so strange because my image of them didn't match their voices and how they actually looked seemed really strange to me. So I thought that was really interesting. And then more generally, you know, you are trying to connect with an audience. So either art that's representative, typography that's really in line with your brand or a picture of the host or something that is representative of your company is probably going to be the best way to go for cover art. Topics and the show types. Yeah, so topics were interesting. And this is kind of where you do see that we are looking, you know, the top 100 business shows for for our data and for analysis purposes. The people who create these podcasts are quite free with the business tag, in my opinion. <laughs> and so a lot of them do edge more towards lifestyle, finance and economics. This is all Apple's fault because they provide such a limited number of options for us to choose between. But it is interesting to see this has been a fairly robust result year over year. Personal finance is always going to be really interesting, entrepreneurship, finance and economics, and of course, leadership management. But what it really says is there's room for everybody at the top. Like there's room for podcasting in almost every industry. It's kind of my takeaway from the high level show topics. When you get down to show type, this is where we're looking at something that One Stone Creative has developed is the different business podcast blueprints. So those are the different kind of high-level archetypes that you can have for podcasting. And if you're going to be attending one of the workshops we're doing later today, we're going to be getting really deep into these. But the, the big ones are thought leadership, audience engagement, and relationship building. 
of the top 100, we can't know perfectly because we're not sitting in on those strategic meetings and understanding the goal for podcasting for these businesses that run them. But from what it seems like from the outside, about 65%, so well over half, are to establish thought leadership and brand awareness and reputation in the industry. And then another 23% are to engage an audience that they already have that's often indicated by a call-in show or by having a really niche topic and educational tone. News and documentary, we kind of put separately because news is news and it's sort of its own thing. A lot of the top 100 shows are created by big broadcast networks like NPR, CNBC. So we, uh, we stuck those into their own category. Let's move on to networks and sponsors. What did you see in these categories? Slightly more networks this year and about the same number of sponsors. So networks are going to continue increasing. I know, Tom, I'd love to hear actually your thoughts on what 51% of data in networks mean because you are, you're the network guy. So what's your thought on the fact that about 50% of the top 100 shows are in networks? And I'm sorry for putting you on the spot. So top 100 shows tend to be, as you have noted, done by a large organization, The Ringer, CNN, NPR, New York Times, really a, a wide variety of multi-million or billion dollar businesses where podcasts are an adjunct to some other form of news entertainment or services. And so those sort of coming together really surprises me less than the groups of independent podcasters who may have one, two, or someone like me who podcasts in a very niche area. The independents are starting to come together just to band together for, I think, size and growth. So this group of podcasts being a part of a network really is not too surprising to me. It's the independence coming together that I think for me is the more interesting topic. I'd agree with you there. And we actually, uh, we looked at that a little bit. It'll be on the bottom of this page, I think, after we uh, we look at the sponsor data. All right. What did sponsor data show you? <laughs> Sponsorship is a really big topic in podcasting. And it's, I'd say, less relevant and less critical for you know a business podcast or a podcast that's run by a company. There's almost always going to be a better use of your airtime in your airspace than random marketplace style sponsorships. And there's even possibly a brand degradation or an implication that your content is not going to be completely genuine if it is sponsored or presented by another company. You know, you want that sort of editorial purity in terms of how your brand is being perceived. But sponsorship is still a way people monetize or defray the cost of podcasting. And so it's on the table for a lot of people and it can be really good, meaningful, beneficial relationships. So we looked at what kind of these podcasts were providing to their sponsors. And then later on, you know, where in the episode ads would go. But for general assets, surprisingly few of the podcasts provided links in the show notes to their sponsors. Most of them had dynamic or pre-produced ads that were inserted either in the pre, post, or mid-roll spot. Host reads, popular, but again, not as much as expected. Host read ads tend to be a lot more valuable. They're a lot more expensive to get. And then just a few provided a logo placement and some who had sponsors provided nothing at all. So I, I can only speculate as to how that relationship was created, but that's what we counted. All right. What about ad placement? Anything really surprise you here? Not too much surprising there. Pre and post rolls are the easiest to create. Post reads are the most valuable and mid rolls, when they're done well, they can be hard to note. So we may not have counted all of them that do exist. And the network type that we touched on in the prior comments. Yeah. So this year, actually, we broke down the types of networks a little bit more because I think there is more and more interest happening about networks. So we looked at content niche, and these are shows like, think of the Motley Fool podcast, you know, all about the different elements of per, personal finance. They mostly produce the shows. Most of the network shows that we saw were in this kind of 
collection of a company that produces multiple shows on a single topic. Then broadcast, these are the big news and publishing organizations. Content creation, these are networks that create content, and they're not necessarily so fussed on theme. Think about Wondery is going to be a good example of that. And then the curation networks, it was hard to tell why they came to be, but it's a network of curated shows, not necessarily tied together by niche. Maybe it was associated with the host or just people who are friends in life or have professional relationships. So that was kind of the high level type that we saw. And I think content niche, collections of shows on a specific theme, that's going to be, I think, a direction where we see a lot more growth. It's a type of network that anyone can create. That's the kind of network that you have, Tom. So what do you think of these different types? So obviously I'm a content niche kind of person, but I have a, in the B2B space, but I have a second network, which is a regional or locality base. So I'm going to be very interested to see if something in a rural area can generate multiple podcasts and of course, bring together listeners as well. I have to shout out Evo Taro who Mm -hmm. is putting together networks of fiction podcasts, obviously a niche area, but also curation. So it's going to be interesting for me to to see where his experiment goes with that as well. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that as well. That'll be very cool to see. Okay. Show parts and tech. And certainly this is something that every podcast listener, or excuse me, podcast producer not only struggles with, but needs to really think about. We'll be right back in just a moment. And now back to the show. Here's one of my bigger surprises from the whole research, and that is how few of these top 100 shows had hooks this year. So this is in contrast to previous years, where first there were in year one that was something around 45, up a little more last year, but now this year it's quite down. So I don't know if it's because people are, you know, cutting back on their editorial budgets or the Apple functionality that allows you to play next. No one uses is a possibility. So I don't have a, a really clear reason for why that is. I'm still a personal fan of the hook. So this little sizzle clip or a piece of audio pulled from the later part of the episode or recorded separately by the host to pique interest and curiosity and kind of generate interest around the topic of the show. For those reasons, I think they're really good, but they just, you know, they were not in the shows this year, which was interesting. What were in shows were guests. So most of the shows by a really, really wide margin had guests, either always or in segments. And that is, I think, related to, you know, why a lot of people podcast is to bring new information to their audiences or to develop those relationships with people. You cannot develop relationships if you are not talking to people. Therefore, podcasts have guests. (laughs) So as you are thinking about starting a podcast or if you are running one now, you probably do have guests unless uh, content is one of your only goals. Looking at kind of now the framing parts of podcasts, the produced intro, the produced outro, most of them do have something that has been specifically created. You know, it's got standard voiceover with music, or maybe it's a live created intro. So people, someone saying, hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, but still having that produced with music. It's a pretty podcast standard thing to do. And I would definitely recommend always having one. And then the CTA. I think it's really important to put some thought into what you're asking people to do. And you should probably, you know, pick one thing that you're asking people to do because too many CTAs is overwhelming. There's a pretty big spread of different options. And this is going to come back again to, you know, where does your podcast fit in your business and what are you hoping the next thing that a listener does and make that your final host CTA. The kind of difference to that is if you do need to make some kind of professional disclaimer, that can also be a good thing to pop right at the end to make sure that people are not taking your advice as legally binding in any way. And how about some editing and show format? 
information. Okay, so editing style is really interesting. Normal hygiene is what we call the editing when, if you're listening to this in the future on one of our podcasts, you will be hearing normal hygiene editing where we go through, make sure the sound all sounds good, remove any particular egregious errors, but then, you know, just make it sound like two intelligent people having a, a normal conversation. Now that can take either a very small amount of editing or an absolutely huge amount of editing. And the end result is going to sound mostly the same. So it can be kind of hard to tell exactly, you know, what the investment in editing was. That is the most standard type of podcast editing you're going to hear. Then there was the none or very minimal. I'm biased as a podcast producer, I don't mind saying, but I don't think that's a good choice for most most podcasts. You do want to sound professional, have your audio sound clean, make it easy to listen to. And then on the kind of other end of the spectrum, there are the editorial or the highly edited podcasts. These are like the documentary style, the NPR style. Amazing if you can create them, but the people who do make those podcasts typically have whole teams working on them full time. So it is long and expensive to make something that sounds that highly edited, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing if that does fit in with your goals. When it comes to show format, an interview, the most popular show format. Solo is also really popular. If you have a lot of content or IP that you want to get out there, a podcast can be a great way to do it. Then we just looked at some of the other options that we did have. Panel and call-in style shows can be really interesting. The co-host conversation plus guest. Alternating two different styles can be a nice way to serve multiple goals with your podcast. But the kind of key thing to remember with show format style is more complexity equals more problems. (laughs) It can be worthwhile to have those problems, but the more humans you get involved, the more schedules you have to manage, and the more detailed and segmented you want your editing, the more you're going to pay for that editing to be done. So it's all about kind of balancing the cost to the benefit of your podcast. Now let's move to show notes. And I will preface this, certainly speaking for myself, is I learned more about show notes on Wednesday than I probably had ever known. I'm very interested in your comments based upon Danielle's presentation and what you saw in the top 100 shows. Definitely, because I'm with you. I'm rarely inspired to create show notes. It, It very much feels like kind of one of the parts of producing or creating a show that is more of a chore than other parts. That feeling is wrong and should be ignored because as we learned, show notes are critical and actually super exciting and a way to add a huge amount of value. So I'm glad to have learned that myself. If you'll scroll down just to touch the show notes style, we can talk about that. And just the part that we just skipped over, put your episodes on separate pages on your website. That's just the way you should be doing things. Now, For in reference to what Danielle said, and I'm going to quote her presentation a little bit, you should go listen to it if you haven't had the chance yet. And if you're listening to this on a podcast later, Go to pfbcon.com. You can get access to all of the recordings that we are talking about here, and it's absolutely worthwhile doing so. So the different show notes styles that we looked at in this report were a single paragraph, a couple of sentences, having a description, then bullets and resources, multiple paragraphs, blog style, and that's like a really long narrative post. And some just had nothing because that's a choice they're making. The single paragraph and the description and bullet resources, that makes up the biggest proportion of the podcast. And I think that's in line with what Danielle shared with us in terms of being able to provide enough content that is valuable, not necessarily as a standalone, but complementary in addition to the audio content, especially those resources. If you'll scroll down a little bit more, Tom, we look at the resources. And here's where there's a bit of divergence between what I'm now going to consider best practice based on Danielle's teaching and what the top 100 shows are doing, because Some of those ones that were the least popular at the bottom here, the related episodes, the video version, the sharing asset, we got some really compelling evidence that these are super, super valuable to include. Of course, resources mentioned and guest info, opt-in, that's your basics. But I think 
if it is possible to put in that extra time and that extra effort to really make your show notes robust and valuable and useful, it does very much seem like the long-term benefit is going to be super valuable. And getting those most popular ones, the resources, the guest info, the socials, the opt-in, that's your hygiene. That's your table stakes for your show notes. But it's later on where you're getting that real benefit. And if you are trying to stand out and you know get extra attention on your brand, be particularly well-regarded, yeah, put in that extra effort. Make it worthwhile and exciting and valuable to go to your show notes pages. I'm really excited about show notes now. I'm going to have to send Danielle a thank you. <laughs> and, and I would just add many of, as you correctly noted, many of the things you see do be doing less at the bottom of this list really add to the overall SEO. And that is mm-hmm. the cheapest, most cost-effective way to get more information on your show out. So it's absolutely almost invaluable is what I would say. Let's move on to website, socials, and links. What did you see for us here? So this is really interesting. I want to provide a little context for what we're looking at with the website and socials and links. So this is really, you know, kind of on podcast websites or on the pages of websites where company podcasts live and on individual episode pages. Where do the hosts or creators of these podcasts want to connect with their audiences or think they're going to be able to connect with their audiences. So that's, we're looking at this data as a heuristic for where are the audiences of these podcasts? Kind of starting with Apple, because people are listening to podcasts on Apple still. I'm not sure if Apple or Spotify, if they've finished their battle for supremacy yet. Apple Podcasts is still the most common place to ask for those ratings and reviews that you do need. Primarily, you need those ratings and reviews, as I think Fatima mentioned in her presentation yesterday. Do you want to be in the new and noteworthy and really kind of get that jump into that top spot into this top 100 level or the top 1% of podcast category? You want to be a new and noteworthy. And that means you have to have a lot of ratings on Apple. The top 100 shows probably unsurprisingly have a lot of them and a very high average rating. Interestingly, there are slightly more average numbers of ratings this year and slightly lower average ratings. So I think the more people you ask to review your show, the more are going to hate it (laughs) and will tell the world so. And that is just the cost of fame. So moving down a little bit, we were looking at the podcatchers. When I say podcatcher here, I'm talking to something like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. These are podcatchers where you can download an app and listen to podcasts through it. And there are four that are more popular, both on main podcast pages and individual episode pages. Of course, they're the big ones, Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. Amazon, this was interesting, a lot less popular this year on both main pages and episode pages than they've been in the past. And I'm not sure why that is because You'd think it would get more traction and become more established the longer it's available. It was only last year that Amazon Music really started making it possible to upload your podcast. Maybe it's people aren't using it. Maybe Amazon has done something that is kind of detracting from the experience of listening to podcasts there, but a lot fewer people were listening to it, which I just thought was was fascinating. And then there were um, some of the smaller, more independent podcatchers. Danielle mentioned this thing. A couple other people did as well. You want to be linking from your episodes to the big ones where people are going to be listening, make that very easy for them. But for all of the rest of them, it's just as easy to link to something like Podlink, which is going to collect all of the different podcatchers and uh, link to them directly for each episode. That can be a really nice thing to include, a really nice, easy way to kind of give access to all of the podcatchers. And looking at social media on the podcast pages, again, what we're looking at, this is where these creators expect their audiences to be and where they want to be connecting with their audiences. So when you're choosing what you know you want to link to yourself, also consider where do you want to engage with your audience? If you never, ever, ever want to use TikTok, don't link to TikTok from your sites. Uh, you know, so really make that decision intentionally. So of course, you've got the big three, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. 
I am super interested to see what Twitter looks like. We've got more detailed results in the social later. But man, after the last month, we collected this data right before Twitter started imploding. So this is immediately pre-Elon data. We'll see what next year means. I can't wait. But yeah, link to where you want to be connecting with people. So over the years, we've had a lively debate on YouTube. What are you seeing (laughs) around YouTube today? And more importantly, what are you recommending about YouTube now? I'm going to give the context for this. This is back, you know, in 2019 and earlier. The podcast hill that I would have died on above all others is that audio is audio and video is video and they should never be before and podcasts do not belong on YouTube. And that was ridiculous. Then we did the first state of business podcasting report and we counted how many of the top 100 podcasts, you know, the top of their game podcasters are putting their episodes on YouTube. And it was like the vast majority of them that were doing that. So I was firmly, completely and officially wrong. And now we create MP4 versions of every episode that we create so people can put them on their YouTube accounts. That is now my official recommendation. And as we're getting more into things and as different types of video are becoming more and more popular and getting more and more traction, We are recommending now leveling that up and really focusing on short form video, whether that's on TikTok, on, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or on like Reels, YouTube Shorts. Yes, you should be using video, whether or not it's live action, talking head style video, or, you know, animated different kinds of video doesn't even matter as much as the fact that you are doing video. So of the shows that are using YouTube, and it's 96% of these top 100 podcasts at least have channels. Some of them are network channels. This is kind of the other stuff that they are putting on to YouTube. So some are only putting their episodes and that's completely fine. But then others, we've got a lot of different kinds of content, repurposed webinars, trainings, other podcasts that they're connected with, just commentary or vlog live stream style content promotions. I mean, there are some people, there are some content companies that their main marketing is their YouTube and their video channel. There are whole businesses that are just YouTube. So you can really get creative with what you want to post. But, you know, if you are a podcaster, there are humans listening to podcasts through YouTube. And you should have your show available there for them in one way or another. So when we look at how people are specifically putting their podcasts on YouTube, most of them are live action. And I think I want to, and that's two people talking, whether it is Zoom recording or in a studio. A lot of them are in studio for these top 100. And it should be remembered, these are mostly people in podcasts who have big budgets, who can get studio time and who have the social clout to get guests to come to them and agree to be on video talking in a studio, you know, nicely mic'd up with a director nearby. You don't need that to have good video for your own podcast. It can be a Zoom conversation, lightly edited, put with some nice framing, or can just be still image or audiogram style. You can use B-roll footage to create videos. I think the really important thing is that you are getting your podcast episodes up there in some format. You can always just put an audiogram style episode up there now and come back later and change it, add more later. But establishing that presence on YouTube and starting to collect those viewing hours is really, really important. So. Let's move down to social media. You talked about Twitter. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone in a month. (laughs) What did you see in social media that interested you? Since we're looking at LinkedIn here, kind of there's a bit of a jump in LinkedIn. A lot more companies were using LinkedIn. It's becoming more of a content exchange platform than it has been in the past. It's really not just a resume site and professional networking anymore. I've heard some people say with varying degrees of happiness or unhappiness, it's the new Facebook. (laughs) And whether or not that's true, I don't know. But, you know, it is, especially for, you know, those of us who are podcasting for our businesses, our audiences are more likely to be on LinkedIn these days than they are to be on Facebook. So I think that was really interesting. And another sort of nice thing about LinkedIn is there's a lot less expectation of constant posting. 
So on Instagram and Facebook, on Twitter, you're going to see a lot more posting frequency. LinkedIn, there's just expectations is going to be less. It's got to be a little bit higher quality. It's going to be probably longer. So I thought that was that was quite interesting. How about our old friend Facebook? <laughs> it's still the big bear. People still have Facebook. People are still posting on Facebook. Still got lots of multiple daily. Interesting, a lot of the Facebook posting we noticed this year, it was reposted from other platforms rather than being completely unique content. So I'm wondering at this point how many Facebook accounts now are just kind of being filled up for hygiene and how much engagement is still actually happening. I think that's an interesting question. It's worth looking at as a company podcaster, but maybe it's not where you want your brand to be. Maybe it's not where your customers are. So that's just something to think about and consider. And TikTok. TikTok was the new one. We did not look at TikTok last year, so I don't have comparison data, but given just how popular it has become, we decided, you know, we better look at it this year. And what was really, really interesting is almost no one linked to TikTok from their websites. It just, it wasn't available or accessible from websites, yet much more than half had a TikTok account. (laughs) There were 61% are there. It's almost like people are using TikTok, but they don't want anyone to know that they're using TikTok. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of funny. Yet people who are using it are mostly using it. Although some people that 16% kind of inactive abandoned, they're probably companies who, like me, reserved the company name, but haven't used it yet because I'm too old to have to learn more social media. I don't want (laughs) I probably will, but I'm resentful of the fact. So Megan, we've talked about Twitter and I think that it's certainly been the biggest that we've all used. I want to maybe hold off on this one because who knows what's going to happen. The data, thank you to Elon Musk, my data is completely obsolete mere (laughs) weeks after collecting this. Oh, great. (laughs) All right. How about Instagram? What did you find there? Really interesting. Slightly more usage of Instagram. It almost feels to me like it's becoming what Facebook was in terms of how people are using it. So there is, I find a lot more engagement happening on people's Instagram accounts. And part of that is because of the short form video. So short form video across all the social platforms, across YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, obviously, and Instagram. And then Instagram, it's Reels are really popular. People are really using. If you scroll down a little bit, we did count how many of the accounts were using Reels and it was 89% of them. So yeah, almost everyone who is using Instagram was using the video features of Instagram as well as just the image ones. So that's something I think to consider. Even though it was, you know, originally the picture social media platform, now it's the video platform. They're, they're taking a run at TikTok and it's going to be interesting over the next couple of years to see, you know, are YouTube shorts going to take the top spot? Will it be TikTok? Will it be Instagram? You should probably have a presence on at least one of them to hedge your bets a little bit. So Megan, we're at the end of the report, but I wanted to conclude your presentation with the question of, is there anything in this report that either surprised you or has caused you to change recommendations you're making to your clients and customers? It has. And this year, it has been the use of short form video. It's a little bit challenging for a lot of company shows. I know there's a little resistance in me personally and among some of our clients to be doing short form video because it is more difficult and time consuming to produce. And the results, the benefits that you're going to get from it, they're long game ones, not short game ones. But it the data is showing us this year that you know using video is becoming more and more table stakes. If not for your podcast itself, then how you're promoting it and engaging with your audience about it. So for anyone listening to this, thinking about you know starting a show, it's pretty good to put at least on your roadmap the idea that video in one way or another, whether it's animated through audiograms or through AI software, which can be a lot more accessible, or live action with the host or the talent or the guest being featured. I think that's something to consider seriously as you make your plans. 
So, Megan, as always, it's been a great report. I wanted to thank you and your team for doing the research and putting this together. Megan, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been great. And thank you to everyone who is here and who is watching it in the recordings. If you would like a copy of this data of your very own, you can go to onestonecreative.net slash report 2022, download it, and you're also going to get an email series with all of my notes, analysis, and comparison to last year's information. I really enjoyed that conversation. Of course, I always love to have a chat with Tom Fox, who asks such interesting questions and has such great insight into business podcasting and especially in networks. But before we just wrap things up, I would like to answer a question that often comes up when we start talking about the results and how we should be applying them to our businesses. How closely do I need to follow the results in the State of Business Podcasting Report? This is a good question to be asking, and the answer is as much as is useful for you. There are some trends like host images and cover art and consistent release schedules that are really clear best practices that you should follow if possible. But your business is different than anyone else's, and the role your podcast plays in it might be as well. Take the information that is useful for you on board. Think about the value or benefits that any of these recommendations or results could bring to you, but you don't need to be so swayed by them or by what these shows are doing that you forget your own blueprint, your own main reason for podcasting, and the style of show and workflows that make the most sense for your business. The best show is one that is helping you achieve business goals. And looking at what the top 100 shows are doing is interesting and informative, and it can help us understand how our own podcasts fit into the broader ecosystem. But it's important to remember that many of them are from big broadcast networks with very different objectives than we might have, or are built as businesses in and of themselves, which can have very different priorities than when we're running a show as part of a business that exists outside of it. So the data that we collect in this report isn't meant to instruct you on the single never fail without a doubt best way to do something. It's designed to help us understand what's happening in the industry and extract useful ideas and information that we can use to make our podcast work even better for us. So keep that in mind and get your copy at onestonecreative.net slash report 2020. That's O-N-E stonecreative.net slash report 2020. As always, I'm your host, Megan Doherty, and this is the Business Podcast Blueprint Show. The show is produced by the whole team at One Stone Creative, and if you want your very own copy of the State of Business Podcasting Report and a detailed analysis and comparison to last year's data, you can get it completely for free at onestonecreative.net slash report 2020. A final time, that is O-N-E stonecreative.net slash report 2020.